Welcome to For the Record, an unfiltered view on current trends and timeless advice for surviving in the aesthetics industry. Whether you're an injector, practice owner, sales rep, or marketer, it's time to set the record straight. Each week, we cut through the chaos and showcase diverse perspectives and winning ideas from the best minds in the industry. I'm your host, Dr. Tiffany Hall, Chief Growth Officer at Aesthetic Record. Now, let's get started on this week's episode. Hey guys, welcome back for another episode of For the Record. This is episode 52 of season three, and today we have the ultimate treat. I fangirled last week, and I'm going to fangirl again this week. We have on our show the guy that brought threads to the U.S., who's built a multi-location practice in Connecticut, who is at the top of everyone's list for both the captain of controversy, but also a genius, an expert in business, an expert in technique and threads and injectables, running a mega practice, training injectors all over really the world, and a big advocate for the PARNNPs on podium, front and center for manufacturers, and for all of us in our training world. So we are so excited today to have with us the man, the one and only, Scott Callahan. Scott, welcome to our show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be on, and it's such an honor. Well, I've waited for three long seasons to get you, and I'm so glad that you're here. And our friendship is almost happenstance um, because we kind of met through other people and I came out to your facility and watched you do this phenomenal thread training that changed my mind entirely about threads. We'll go into all that. Um, I'm sure everyone knows who you are, but just to kind of catch our audience up, um, give us a little bit of an idea about you as a physician's associate, what you've been doing, kind of your background, your career, get us started. Sure. So, um, you know, um, I became a physician assistant and 2000. I know today we're supposed to say physician associate, but sometimes like I can't correct myself. My father was um, essentially the first physician assistant in Connecticut, uh, licensed 001, graduated Emory. I followed in his footsteps. Um, I went into being a, a PA to go into heart surgery. That's all I ever cared about. And I was uh, in that for eight years and then converted over to plastic surgery and then finally converted over to med spa. And um, you know, it's been 23 years I've been going at it and, it's, you know, I've never in a million years would I think this is what I'm doing for a job or for a living, but I, I, I'll tell you, it's been a fun ride. Well, and in those 23 years, you've done a lot of stuff. And let's not forget, you're also a husband, you're a father, you've got a lot going on, a lot of staff, but so catching back up though. So you're in heart surgery. This is kind of your passion. At what point did you decide, hey, I think I'll just go do med spa stuff, but like that's such a, that's a pretty radical jump. So I started um, in adult heart surgery, and um, I was basically, first I was working at Yale, I worked at Boston Medical, um, I worked at UCLA, and, um, you know, heart surgery was like the big thing at that point. And then, you know, the cardiologists at that point started being able to stent, um, you know, circumflex and uh, right coronary arteries and left mains, which they couldn't previously, and the numbers would die. So you would go from doing 4,000 cases a year of heart surgery down to 400 cases, and I saw, you know, the writing on the wall. So I converted over to pediatric heart surgery, which was at Yale and CCMC for three years. And that was an incredible job, but didn't pay very well. And then eventually I said, okay, well, I got to find something else. And that's when I converted over to plastics. Um, I was moonlighting in plastics, but I, you know, I had not done it full time. So now that I was in plastics, um, you know, it, I started getting the training. And, you know, back then, uh, physician uh, assistants and People like me, we, we weren't really injecting. We were really in the OR, you know, doing the surgical stuff. It was rare to actually do injections. And so that kind of came later. 
But, you know, I think about that. All of you who started in surgery, I feel like you have such an advantage because you've seen it all. You know, like you've seen below the skin. You've seen all the layers. And, like, the anatomy labs for you is, like, your job every single day. And so I feel like there's such an advantage having started out in that role versus starting out with a syringe in your hand. I've listened to you train, and you train like a physician trains residents, like very high level. Um, the words that you use, the way that you approach it, it's like watching art. I mean, I, like I said, I'm going to fangirl for you, but it literally changed my mind about threads, like just watching you talk about it. So I can tell that you spend a lot of time in some very high level places. But so you come to med spa, come to med spa land, come with the rest of us. Did you start your own practice in the beginning or did you work somewhere else and then make the jump? So I was, um, I was working at a hospital in Connecticut called Griffin Hospital. And I had three jobs. I was at Griffin, I was at Bridgeville Hospital, and I was um, at Yale. And um, I had three different jobs. I was working hard. And uh, I had the idea to start the med spa with another doctor named Dr. Rivera. And um, around this time, uh, Griffin Hospital started a cancer center. It was like a $28 million cancer center. And they have a thing called plain tree philosophy. And what that means is that you have to really like take great good you know good care of the, the patients uh, treat them in a in a totally different way than you otherwise would in hospitals and so um anyways i, I joined this program I was a volunteer it was an unpaid job for a year and i basically treated um chemo uh radiation patients with aesthetic treatments to make them feel better about their skin and then from there uh they allowed us to then treat the employees and then from there I was able to open up my own office, which we opened in 2010. That's a, an altruistic story, but what a great what a great start to get there. So 2010, you start Dolce Vita, and from there, I mean, I'm sure it's been just like a wild ride ever since. But I mentioned in the opening that you kind of brought threads to the U.S. When I think about threads, anyone who's heard of, thought about, or done threads in the past, you know, I don't know, seven, eight years, your name is synonymous with threads. You are the guru in the whole country. I think you came over with like Anil, Rajani, maybe Keon Creamy, that kind of a group of you really started this whole thing. Where did that come from? Because that's obviously not a thing that we were doing here. They were doing it over in Korea. How did you even get that here and even learn about it to start that that whole journey? Well, in 2010, when my med spa started, we were like one of the first med spas in Connecticut. There was only like, say, three or four places. You know, the focus of your practice is on Botox and fillers, and you didn't really have a lot of options to offer patients. And you knew that you weren't getting enough lifting opportunity and you knew that you had to refer these people for facelifts and necklifts. And so, you know, after so many years of that, you know, you're looking for something that would be better than, you know, what was uh, available at that time. So eventually in 2000, it's like 2006, seven and eight, I started playing with the first threads, which are called cutting threads, uh, which were like Nova thread and Euro threads. And, um, you know, unfortunately they didn't work very well, but that was like the very beginning of it. That converted into mint threads, which then converted to Merky threads. But it took around nine years to basically evolve the threads, you know, to where we are today. Yeah, I think about sculpture. For people who use sculpture way back in the day when it was HIV, you know, they had a few adverse events and things didn't go well. And so everyone hated sculpture for like, I don't know, a decade. You know, it's so dangerous. It's so terrible. And everyone freaked out about it. We were just using it wrong, right? We were just doing it the wrong way. It wasn't that the product didn't work. We just we weren't smart enough yet at that point to know what to, what we didn't know. I feel like Threads has kind of the same thing where people had a few experiences in the beginning, they weren't good at it, and it's like, now Threads don't work. But you are a very outspoken advocate about Threads. So I'm just curious for those who are listening who don't do Threads, like, what's the pitch on that? How do we know, you know, is it the injector? Is it the thread? How do we choose what we want to choose to make sure we get the outcomes that you get? Because your outcomes are fantastic. I mean, to me, the 
the threads essentially is what uh, is, is, is sculpture, you know, sculpture. Remember in 1999, 2000, I worked at Boston Medical with Gregory Antoine. We were uh, treating lipoatrophy patients with sculpture. I was one of the first VAs to ever touch sculpture in the United States. And, you know, over those two years that I was there, um, we couldn't believe how much collagen stimulation we were getting out of the product. We could do a full pan volumization of the face. Um, and, you know, there was no limitations, restrictions back then. It was covered by insurance. And uh, it was unbelievable. So, you know, to me, threads have a lot of collagen stimulation similar to sculpture. They help essentially the peripheral areas like sculpture does. And so uh, sculpture and threads are really good combinations. But it does take time and you have, there's a lot of mistakes, there's a lot of errors, there's a lot of bad, you know, techniques in the, the beginning that have to be worked through. Yeah, I place the order for Aesthetic Next every year for the threads and you did a just a badass conference this year, badass class with a whole group of just phenomenal thread people. But even the order, I'm looking at this order and Scott, I know a lot about injectables, probably as much as anybody. And I'm like, what the heck am I ordering? All these numbers and is it smooth? Is it fine? Is it, I mean, I don't even know what I'm looking at. And so for a person who's getting into threads, like on day one, aside from going and working with you directly, where do they even start to learn? Because I, I mean, personally want to know this selfishly, where do they even start to learn what threads go in what area and kind of how to map out the face and think about it? I mean, the first thing is that you want to make sure that you work with the right company. So how, how you come to that decision is that you want to work with a company that sells molded threads, uh, meaning you don't want to have a company that has cutting threads. We know that those don't work as well. They don't last as long. So by definition, that means that you're going to work with a company like Mint or with Benev, which makes Miracu. And so from there, you go to those companies and you basically say, look, I really want to learn this. What kind of training opportunities or um, online you know, uh, opportunities are there for me to learn about these products? And they'll direct you to all the training events that occur, you know, across the country. Um, hopefully, if you get to the right trainings, you'll, you know, um, you'll develop your skills. I, even when I started, it took, I, I think I did like nine trainings in the first, you know, six or seven months when I started. Um, it was like peeling back layers of onions. Yeah, I just simply, I needed to know, know more each and every time. Yeah, it's not a one-stop, you know, one-and-done kind of thing. And I think you've... I put together your slide decks with you for Aesthetic Next. Again, that's how I learn everything is by reading all the slide decks. But you've developed all these, you know, I don't know if they're trademarked or, you know, if they're patented for you, but all these unique techniques that no one else is doing that kind of you've, you know, you've built. What are things I can do? Because, again, I'm selfishly asking here that I can do with threads that I can't do with filler. Because I think that's the thing people have to understand is like just like laser, right? There's things I can do with laser I can't do with filler and vice versa. I think threads is the same way, but... What are the things that you're doing now that I think are, you know, that are innovative and novel that no one else is doing or, or haven't thought about yet or can't do yet? I think that the industry has uh, been fooling itself for a long time. And it's been telling, you know, everybody that, you know, filler can lift uh, skin in big ways. And we just know that's not true. Uh, you know, you could put in, you know, 8, 10, 12, 14 syringes of filler in, and the amount of lifting you're getting is very, very minimal. Threads, on the other hand, are, you know, really essentially transpositioning and lifting tissue from the fascia layer, which is very similar to a facelift or a neck lift. And when you put those patients in things like Vectra's and you measure the millimeters of lift, I mean, it's like, you know, six, eight, 10 millimeters of lift with each suture lifting two pounds of, of weight. Uh, threads are completely lifting, whereas filler is not. Now, on the, you know, on the other hand, you still need filler because filler essentially is the 3D volumization the patient needs for youthfulness. And unfortunately, uh, in the case of the patient, they just need 
threads and filler, that combination is what looks the best. And unfortunately, that's going to, you know, sometimes be expensive. Yeah, I often wonder if, it's, if cost is what gets people to say no to it. But I feel like, you know, we talk about filler fatigue all the time. That's a big hot button word. Right? And everyone's saying filler fatigue. I think you're on. I mean, what you're saying is exactly what you should tell, what people should tell a patient. Like, we can keep putting filler in the same spot, but it, we're not going to get the result that you want. You, It's either a facelift or let's go down the thread, you know, the thread road. And I think a facelift is far more expensive and far more invasive, obviously. But what's the recovery time on threads? You know, for an average person getting a full face of threads, what does it look like for your practice to tell them how long they're, you know, kind of out of commission? Um, you know, years ago, it would be like 10 to 14 days or so where they'd be sore, mildly swollen, possibly bruised. Nowadays, when we've added uh, things like exosomes and other regenerative uh, ingredients, we're getting a much quicker recovery time. So within like usually three to five to seven days, they're simply uh, sore with a little bit of mouth swelling with really no bruising. Um, so it's gotten a lot better. You said exosomes. That's a, one of my favorite topics right now. I, mm-hmm. Everyone's talking about exosomes. So you've been doing it for a hot minute because obviously you're very, very in the mold with or in the fix with Benev. You guys work a lot together. You've been a big part of the Miracle launch with them. But you know a lot about exosomes. So what does that mean for a practice? Do I have to have exosomes? Like what do I even do with exosomes? I think that there's still so much unknown and people are very um, quick to say, oh, it's kind of smoke and mirrors. It's not real. We don't have good exosomes yet, you know, stem cells, et cetera. What's the exosome story? Well, you know, when um, I was probably one of the first people in the United States to use exosomes, this is like uh, six or seven years ago when I started developing my relationship with Benev. Um, I knew that exosomes were messengers from stem cells. I knew that they could help heal, build collagen, build elastin. I saw lots of studies and I went to all the companies because a lot of the companies would argue that their, you know, their exosomes were better than the next. And eventually they developed this thing called the Ross scale. And it would look at the concentration of the exosomes to determine how much concentration of real exosomes are in, in the actual product. And when third-party studies were, were done, it, it turns out that Benev, who has one of the most inexpensive choices, is somewhere in the ballpark of $75 to $100 per vial, actually has as much concentration of exosomes as any of the other much more expensive products from the other companies. So ultimately, Benev became my choice. And I, they have a great, um, huge headquarters in Korea. It's a new, like, $35 million building where they produce their exosomes. Well, and they're on, they're on to something. Because everyone that I talk to that's using the Benev brand is having phenomenal results. But, you know, I think about exosomes, think about threads. Like, you're very much a pioneer in many things that you do. And you just mentioned something about, I went to the companies and I asked. I feel like that's kind of your nature. You just go ask. Like, you just beat down the front door and say, hey, I'm here and I want to know walk us through that because I feel like a lot of people want to know what you know they want to be like you but they don't really have the gumption to do what you're doing and just go beat down the door and walk in and say hey I'm here walk me through it first of all where did you get that kind of courage because I think that is a courageous thing to do but second of all like how does that separate you from everybody else because you are willing to go ask the questions and be uncomfortable and be in the moment and say hey guys like I have to know the answer I can't move forward you know I think a lot of injectors out there just don't realize that the people at the top of these companies are much more accessible to them than they are. You know, they're willing to speak, they're willing to argue and debate and talk. And, um, you know, uh, unfortunately, just a lot of people just don't, you know, don't seek it. But, um, you know, with any company I work with, I try to really understand who the executive leadership team is. Um, I want to know essentially, you know, where their products are from, where their ingredients are from, you know, what their, their mission statement is. These are things that are important to me because what I've come to learn is that 
when it comes to working with companies and products, it's really about the company's relationship with me that matters. Because essentially, if I work with Peter, who's my rep, and Peter goes to another company, I love Peter, well, then I'm going to typically use, you know, Peter's new product, you know, so it's about relationships. And that's why I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not scared to go meet, you know, the new people or talk or whatever. They, I think they actually like it. I think they do too, because everyone wants feedback. They want to know how it's being used, what it's being used with. And I think because you've done that, think about the Silfirm X right now. I mean, I'm seeing that device everywhere. I didn't even know what it was until I came to the Dolce for a symposium and I was introduced to it and I was blown away by it. And now I'm seeing it everywhere. I feel like, you know, you get the right advocate behind a product or a brand and all of a sudden, obviously their credential, their, you know, influence and expertise goes along with it. It's a great product anyway. Now you have this explosion of things. So what a great choice for Ethan and the Benev team to say, hey, Scott, let's come on and, and talk about this because it's been great for their business, too. But, you know, again, you are a pioneer, but, you know, kind of thinking through that in, in the same vein, people say that things like threads don't work. They say that I see on Instagram, you know, once a week, a, a doctor saying or, you know, nurse, whoever saying these things don't work. Threads are hocus pocus. Exosomes don't work. Like, how do you come? How do you combat that? Because I've seen you stand up and take a pretty big stance um, against that and say it does work. Maybe maybe you're just not doing it right. So give us an idea of how, you know, you, you are controversial, but in a way that's very respectful and people don't get turned off by you. You know, again, you just have to understand that everybody has their agenda. A plastic surgeon wants to cut, an injector wants to inject, threader wants to thread, right? And at the end of the day, um, it comes back down to evidence-based studies, right? So, you know, it's not about opinion. It's about, you go to Korea and there's thousands of studies that have shown over 10, 15 year studies showing exosomes and threads working well in human populations with advancement of threads every three to four months. Um, it doesn't take uh, MIT or a smart guy to realize that there's something here. Um, unfortunately, the plastic surgeons and dermatologists that are out there may you know, say, look, I don't want that. Well, of course they don't want that. They wanna do faceless and necklace. So of course they have, um, uh, you know, they they're going to argue for their their type of procedures, and I I would too if I was a plastic surgeon. But at the end of the day, the ones that are smarter, that will embrace it, like many plastic surgeons dermatologists have, uh, now have another tool to use besides surgery. And sometimes threads are could be much more profitable than the surgeries themselves. And that's why I think you're going to see a lot of plastic surgeons dermatologists embrace this over the next five years. Yeah, I mean, it's a business decision. I, I think to myself, one facelift, let's say, I don't know, depending on where you live, it could be 20, 30, 40 grand, whatever it is. You get one patient who does a facelift, but you get 10 who do threads. Like at the end of the day, money talks. And I think the profitability aspect to what you just mentioned, I can get 10 more patients in my fold, in the mix of my practice, doing filler, doing, you know, toxin, doing threads, eventually maybe doing a facelift, but doing all the other things in the meantime. A facelift is kind of a one and done. I mean, you can't have another facelift, right? You can't keep coming back and doing that. Maybe you do a breast dog next or whatever else. But to me, it's just a profitability thing, which, I mean, leads me to the fact that you're very good at business. So I don't, I don't know. To me, it just seems like a no-brainer for a plastic or a derm to do this. And you have lots of people in your camp who are plastics. I think about, you know, Jeff Rosenthal. You've got a whole group of trainers who are kind of in your camp, in your wheelhouse. But how did you start thinking about, you know, at your symposiums, I've obviously been to one, you talk about that business um, injectables, you talk about threads, you give the whole gamut of everything you need to know to be successful in this industry at your symposiums. Where did that idea come from? Because I feel like a lot of that is you incorporating this kind of thing into that, you know, two to three day uh, intensive. Well, the procedure obviously has to work and it has to work well, but it also has to be profitable, right? And, and it has to have high patient satisfaction. It needs all three of those things. 
So, for example, unless you're a Dr. Kassir or Andrew DeCono or Laura Devcon, you know, charging $60,000 for facelifts, you're going to be like the everyday facelift kind of guy making $20,000, $30,000. Well, you go to your facelift, it takes, you know, six, eight, ten hours. You have follow-up care for several appointments, you know, phone calls galore, you know, different issues. Um, you know, work out the profitability of that, and it's not going to be great. And so thread lifts, you're, you're, you can do an average of five to seven thread lifts a day is typically what we do. And each of them have profitability of two to $3,000 per procedure and with no follow-ups and no phone calls and that type of thing. It just makes much more business sense so long, of course, as the procedure is good and the patient satisfaction is high. And it's like a facelift a day. Basically, you're doing a facelift a day when it comes to money that you're, and probably taking home a whole lot more because you don't have surgical fees, overhead, you know, anesthesia, et cetera, et cetera. No, no one's sitting there keeping the patient, you know, knocked out. But I want to talk about the symposium because I know that you stopped doing them this year. I think you had your last one, which is very sad. I was a very, very sad person because they were so amazing. But you put on this killer show. I mean, it, I think it is a show. Every time you, you've done it, it looks like a show. You know, thinking about letting that go and saying, I'm done with the symposiums, I'm done with the Dolce symposiums. What brought that decision about? Because again, you have amassed this massive following and now, you know, you're no longer doing them coming to your practice, the whole shebang. What's the next step for that to keep your magic going without them coming into the, you know, into your practice and doing the whole, whole big three day event? Well, we had, you know, we had a total of 10 symposiums over three and a half, four years. Uh, we had 1200 total injectors trained. And a lot of those injectors are some of the best in the world. And so it was always my hope that those injectors would take what I, what I taught them and develop their own symposiums and their own training courses, which many of them did. And so when I started to see this happen, I realized that, you know, that this thing was going to take, take its own, you know, its own course. As far as, you know, we were concerned, it's a lot of work. I mean, you know, we're seeing an average of 300 to 350 patients a week with, um, you know, eight injectors and four offices, you know, and you're put a symposium in there and you're taking thousands of hours away from our patients. So, you know, it definitely had a, a major cost to my practice to do it, but I knew that it was important to get it going. Now, uh, you know, great people like Yvonne Delos and Sunil Chikari and all these good people, they're, they're, they're uh, taking the torch and they're moving on with their own courses. Uh, there's cult aesthetics out there. There's, uh, there, there's all kinds of other, you know, uh, training courses. Maybe one day the Dolce Symposium will be back, you know, um, at some point. But, you know, for now we needed a break. When you get bored without anything to do, <laughs> you'll bring them back. No, I'm kidding. So you mentioned four practices, you know, eight injectors. So let's talk about that for a second because your business acumen is like crazy off the charts, which I love more than anything as someone who can talk business and who can run a successful business. So you have four locations. I want to know how that works for you because you, you're going back and forth, I think, between a couple of them. So you're kind of on the move as well. I think your staff is, is, is on the move too. How did you build a scalable model? And how did you even come to the, you know, the idea of like, hey, we need to have another location, then another location, then another location. You just kept growing and growing and growing. How did you get there? Well, for us, you know, the issue was that in Connecticut, Connecticut's a small state. Uh, our goal was to represent uh, areas that would essentially be 30 minutes apart. And so, um, you know, with the four locations, we were able to essentially cover, you know, the, the state pretty well um, and gain all the different things. I mean, uh, you know, people come to injectors who are good and injectors that have great reputations or do uh, advanced techniques and no one else does. But, you know, distance is a big part of their decision as well. And so I felt that, you know, four offices was about as much as I could micromanage. I mean, I couldn't do more than that, but it would be um, 
you know, uh, as long as we were covering a larger surface area, we wanted to gain more patients from Connecticut. And are they all open every day? So there's a whole different team, I'm guessing, in many cases that's working in each office. It's not just, you're not just moving your staff around. They have their own staff. Is that right? Each office has its own staff. Each office, you know, and that staff could also be rotating from location to location. Each office is open every day um, so that there's accessibility to all those offices and quick uh, appointments. When it comes to vanity appointments, they have to be quick. They can't be telling people they need to wait for three or four months. No one is a, a good enough injector to say that to a patient currently. And there's a lot of competition out there. Yeah. I want you to say that again for the folks in the back. No, I'm kidding. But no one wants to wait that long. I was listening to a podcast this week, and it's like if you're more than, you know, eight, nine weeks out, no one's coming to you. There, Our need for immediate gratification is far too high to wait. I don't care how good you are. We're not going to wait. We might wait for the big things like the big rocks, maybe a thread lift, but not for like our toxin. We're going to go wherever that, you know, they have an opening. But thinking through that with that many offices, how do you keep the Dolce Vita vibe? Because you have a very distinct culture in your practice. You can look at your Instagram, which God love its soul. It's back now. Thank goodness. If you guys haven't followed Scott again, please go follow him. But you've got a very distinct vibe and you know a look and a feel. How do you make that work in every location so that it's just the exact same experience no matter where I go? You know, we just kind of follow that McDonald's or Walt Disney, you know, uh, concept, which is that, you know, the experience should be the same for each and every client. And so we try to be very consistent. Um, prices are the same in all four locations. Uh, staff, you know, um, protocol is the same in all locations. There are some different flavors, you know, each of the four offices based on their, ge- their geographic location. But essentially, the experience should really be the same. The injectors are all trained by me. So, uh, you know, we're hoping that obviously the experience, the procedural experience will be the same. And we have very, very uh, talented staff. And of course, the, the success of my med spa is based upon my staff and how good they are. When your wife, Katie, is very involved and, you know, does she help manage from like more of a leadership perspective, all the offices while you're because you're with patients all day. I'm sure that you're seeing patients nonstop. So someone's got to be taking care of the house, you know, while you're in the back, you know, making the dough. So how, how does she help kind of bridge the gap with all the practices or is it, you know, managers in each location? Give us not the secret sauce, but a little bit of the secret sauce. Well, Katie is a, an incredible office manager. She runs all four offices on an everyday basis. She communicates to each of the office, you know, with the girls to make sure that everything's going well. Um, we have uh, other leaders uh, under her that essentially can micromanage and kind of only leave the big things to Katie. But essentially, she's she's right on top of it. I mean, Dolce Vita ran for seven years without Katie uh, in the beginning because my children were young. And during those times, we were very successful. But, you know, uh, there were many things that we were lacking in terms of customer service and business organization. When Katie finally um, was able to come on board after the children were older, it definitely cleaned up our act. It made us essentially have a much higher gross revenue. Uh, There were a lot of things that were lacking that Katie was able to pick up on once she got involved. So having a trusted person involved in your business beside yourself, I think is key. Yeah, I've watched your MA with you. And I think she might be moving on in nursing school or something I saw on Instagram. But she knows what you want before you even th- I mean, before you even think about it. She already has it ready for you. I mean, I watched it at the symposium I went to. It was like art. I mean, again, it was like art. She already had everything laid out for you. She knew what you wanted. She knew what you were going to do. She already had, it was like she was doing the consultation with you and she just knew what was going to happen next. So I think whatever you're doing to train your people, it must be phenomenal because they are in lockstep with you. Like I, I watched them all that whole weekend. They just, it's like they knew what you wanted. Everyone was on the same page. 
it just floats. I don't know how you're keeping that going, but whatever it is, it's it's working for you. I think that's the number one thing people come to me and ask me is how do I keep a staff trained the same, using the same protocols, using the same kind of cultural you know, patient satisfaction idea across multiple locations. And it's not an easy thing to do. And somehow you have mastered it. So congratulations on that. It's a huge, it's a huge win. Yeah, thank you. I mean, uh, the number one thing that I always tell people is that you have to be, you can't be afraid to pay. Meaning that, you know, uh, good staff comes with good salary, with good incentives and, and constant incentives. When I see a lot of med spas restrict and limit, you know, the salary benefits or limitations of uh, how much commission they can get, all these different things, they're simply just st- stopping their progress. And so, um, you know, our, our practice really focuses hard on paying our staff well and making sure that they have benefits that other places don't have. Yeah, and they, I mean, they get a lot of FaceTime too. They're all over your Instagram. They, you know, they're celebrated. You can tell they get celebrated quite often. That's a big thing I hear as well is like, gosh, if I put them on Instagram, what if they get famous and they leave me? Like, well, what if you don't put them on Instagram and they leave you because they're upset with not being part of the you know part of the family so you've done a great job with that i think god bless your instagram i know it's back but how do you even think about like that kind of stuff like how do you showcase people and showcase your staff and and kudo them you know in a way that's beneficial for the practice but also beneficial for them as an injector in your clinic because i think that is definitely the line that people are trying to tell right now i see a lot of med spots see all kinds of weird stuff like you'll see them say okay well you can't have your own instagram handle you have to have an instagram handle through our own practice and they think that's somehow going to control you know uh, the visibility to the patients the bottom line of it is that in 2023 um, the patients are going to find that injector you know through instagram social media etc and so at the end of the day just let them grow let them develop you're paying them well you're treating them well why would they want to go somewhere else you know obviously some people have to just grow and they go to nursing school or you know pa school or whatever but uh, the reality of it is you can't control them. You just let them, you just have to let them grow and develop on their own. Yeah, I agree. I see it even, you know, here, we're not a med spa, but in the same vein here, you got to give them money to go learn and go challenge themselves and grow. And staffing is hard. People are going to leave. It's just, it's the nature of the beast. People are going to leave, but it is what it is. And you got to figure out how to hedge your bets. But, you know, sort of thinking through that and to that point, you have lots of, lots of injectors. So, you know, the plight of the RN and PPA. And you were the guy, this is actually how, how I found you. Maybe it was last year or two years ago, there was a controversial decision made by a group of um, conferences who said, we will have no non-physicians on podium. It's not happening. We're not doing it. And you came out almost immediately and you're like, wait a minute, like, hold on a second. We're over here and we're, we've been part of these meetings for a long time. What about us? So as a person who employs great injectors, you are a phenomenal provider doing all the different things. Where do we stand with that? Like, how do we, you know, I'm thinking through that as you as an advocate for the industry, what is our fight there? How do we come behind people like you and support that endeavor to say, wait a minute, you don't have to be a physician to run a great business or to run a great practice or to be great at providing, you know, patient outcomes? Yeah, so so in this situation, um, this was um, in relation to the aesthetic show, Vegas Cosmetic and Miami Cosmetic. This was a conference that I love going to. I've been going probably for 10 years I was a main speaker there for a long time uh, when Michael Morelli, you know, ran the conference. Unfortunately, um, they just there was a decision by their board of directors that uh, nurse practitioners and PAs and nurses couldn't speak at their conferences. So I addressed them directly and tried to deal with it directly. They kind of wouldn't step down. It was mostly pushed by the dermatologists that were on their board uh, that they would maintain this. And they did that at the aesthetic show. 
their attendance was about 50%. And so they realized this, they took a huge hit. So they decided, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I said that wrong. They, that the attendance uh, drop was at the Vegas Cosmetic and Mind Cosmetic. And then therefore at the aesthetic show, they tried, they, they decided to change their, um, uh, their rules. And at the aesthetic show, they had a much bigger attendance than you know they were hoping for. Um, and so ultimately, uh, any conference that limits nurse practitioners, PAs, and nurses, 2023, from being you know key speaker positions, is simply limiting the conference's growth. We're 84% of that um, majority, and essentially, you might as well just destroy your conference if you do that. So, I, I would just say to those people out there that they really need to think hard before they make these type of decisions. Yeah, again, business decision, right? Like it's not a smart move. We talk about it all the time in Aesthetic Next because I'm such an advocate for all providers of all levels being on stage. If you have a great idea and you're great at what you do, I'll take you. You know, I don't care. We just want good ideas and, you know, good people who are teaching good things the right way. But I think about that. You know, I was with Lori Robertson, gosh, Galderma, years and years and years, a long, long time ago to date us. And she did like an injection on stage, I remember it vividly. Uh, before they had the law where you couldn't inject anymore, like even before that, you couldn't inject, in, you know, in a conference in Vegas. Like we were doing the aesthetic show, gosh, forever ago. And then to hear that, I was just shocked because I feel like I feel like that the NPs, PAs, RNs built that conference. Like they built the attendance. They built sort of the 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 whole vibe of that conference. And to hear that was like a shocking thing for me. But it's it's very, very common. And, you know, what do you think the rub is? Like what what is the reason why people make these like sweeping decisions that are just, you know, frankly, asinine? Why is this happening still? I mean, you mentioned why would, would you do it today? I have no idea, but why do you think they're doing it? And what are you what are you being told when you ask those questions by those conference directors who say to you, well, here's how we're going to do it? Well, again, it, it comes back to the, the uh, dermatologists and some of the plastic surgeons in that there's this idea, obviously, that they've done all these years of education, residency and training, and they feel that the nurse practitioners and PAs and nurses who are going right into the aesthetic practice simply don't have the same education training and they feel that they should have, you know, key positions of leadership and speaking ability. And I understand why they feel that way. But there, what a lot of people don't realize is there's a couple of points to counter that. First of all, in dermatology and plastic surgery training, there is no training for injectables and fillers. There still isn't currently, or threads or any of the other advanced things that we do. And on top of that, the nurse practitioners and PAs all have variable experience and knowledge. Some of them have incredible knowledge and, you know, some of them are inexperienced. But I feel like, you know, the, the bigger issue is, is our aesthetic procedures, how can we develop and grow them and build them? And it takes all of us at the table to make that happen. So the plastic surgeons and derms need to realize that nurse practitioners and PAs and nurses need to be at that same table, along with estheticians and along with other you know third parties, because only together are we going to actually grow. And so I, I hate the fact of what's happening now, which is that there are some conferences where the dermatologists go to and some conferences where the plastic surgeons go to and some conferences where the mid-levels or nurse practitioners or PAs or nurses go to. And, you know, it's so short-sighted because we can all be learning from each other. Yeah, I think the patient suffers. I mean, if anyone suffers as a patient and also the new people who are coming into the industry who are looking for great training and they're, you get kind of caught up in the infighting and you can't figure out who to go to and who to trust and who's you know best for you. But often one or two, Scott, and this is just me thinking about, you know, dollars and cents, is I'm sure the training part's a bit of it of just like the, you know, I've been through medical school, I've been through fellowships, et cetera, but also competition. Because you mentioned you guys are massive numbers. I think the majority of the medical spa industry, the volume produces by MPPARN. It's not by physicians or it's physicians who are non, you know, non-core, which is a terrible word to use, but it is what it is. 
I think it's a matter of competition that people are scared they're going to come take over, but you already have taken over. So it's like we're, that cart, you know, has or that horse already left the barn. We're already way past that. But do you see the manufacturer starting to, in higher numbers, adopt that mindset that you guys, if I look at, you know, you, Erica, all these guys that, you know, I was looking at Erica's Instagram last night. She has like 250,000 followers, a ridiculous amount of followers. That's a massive amount of appeal. How do, you know, how do manufacturers now receive this and are they helping to step up and lead the charge to have non-physicians on podium? Well, you know, Erica's situation is actually a very interesting example because Erica, when I met Erica, which was at my Dolce Symposium 1.0, this is like four years ago, Erica and many of the injectors that were there did not own their own practices, right? They were like independent people working at other med spas. So she worked for Jonah uh, Dristel at that time. And basically, the point being is here you have Erica, who is extremely educated, right? John Hopkins, like very knowledgeable, very smart, savvy, great injector. But a lot of people just just don't realize that they can actually own their own practices or have the audacity to move to the next step. And then within years, all of those injectors that came to that symposium end up developing their own practices. And only then did they gain the power and the, the finances and the ability and the control of their own course. And so the point being is that there are even today in the United States, there are a lot of nurse practitioners, PAs and nurses don't, don't realize that only in ownership can they actually have that power. They're still working for other um, other physicians and they don't need to be. And so um, I applaud, you know, people like Erica who really taking, you know, what they had and then really developed it into a whole nother thing. Yeah, but you got to counter that, right? Because you got to have staff. So like that's what people are always saying is like if I want to hire an amazing injector and have them work with me, then they're going to be an amazing injector and go build their own practice. And so they're, I think that's the the dichotomy or the paradox here is like how do you employ you know an Erica back in the day and not have Erica leave and grow? But at some point we keep producing injectors in this in this industry like we're like rabbits they just keep multiplying. So I think the the pool of injectors is still out there. It's just a matter of Will you take the time to find one and develop their skill set and teach them all the things they have to know to be successful in your practice? And then they may leave, and that's okay. They've given you great service in the you know in those years they were with you. So, but I do think people are scared about you know what if I employ the next Scott Callahan and I think he's going to work here forever and all of a sudden he's not and he's on his own and now he's my competition. What do you say to that? Well, I, you know, I look for top injectors all the time. Unfortunately, you know, um, and when they come on board, as clean as the contracts are. You know, you're typically going to get them for like two or three years before they move on. And that's okay. You know, you, you're going to teach them stuff. They're going to teach you stuff. You're going to gain experiences and have fun. And then they're going to move on to something else. You can't control that. But um, I think the smartest, I was thinking about this the other day, but I think the smartest people are the people like, um, uh, you know, the people like Larry Blevins or uh, Audra Rose who have their own schools because that's a great way to suck in people in who are, you know, highly talented, screen them through your own, you know, uh, uh, school to figure out who the superstars are and then hire those superstars under your own banner. Um, that's the one thing that I think I'm missing is I don't have a school like that to screen and, and get providers. Because, the man, uh, the, those guys that you see them, like Larry and, Aud- and Audra, they always get very talented providers to work for them. I think Yvonne's in the same boat with the Setico. She, you know, they come through her, her world. But, you know... That's what I think what you just said. They're going to come for two to three years. Like, just know that going in and be okay with it. But I think that's where what you have is different because people cling to your brand. I think you've done a really good job of building Dolce Vita as a brand. I mean, it's still Scott Callahan. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's you and the brand. But you've you've made sure that people feel like they connected to your brand so that if a person comes and goes, 
they still love Dolce Vita, right? They're still going to come to Dolce Vita because that's what they know, that's what they love. Forget, you know, if it's Jane, Sally, Mary, I mean, they're going to love their injector too, but you get my point. I think there is a part of it where a practice does have a risk of building an injector so much more than the brand that when they leave, the brand suffers. You have to, I think, build them in parallel or make sure the brand is always kind of, to your point, Walmart, McDonald's, always the name that people belong to and that they cling to, not just the injector. You know, I think that's that's where I think we have such a, um, a unique opportunity here is to think about brand building in this country. How do you brand build in the industry? And that's what I think is important. But I could soapbox that all day long, Scott. Get me off the soapbox. In 2015, I was in a you know big car accident, and I was um, you know hitting the uh, driver's side, and I was in uh, ICU, and I was out for about a month or so, and I came to realize at that moment in my life that um, Dolce Vita could possibly go down in less than 45 days without me working, and it was at that moment I realized that it can't be about Scott Callahan; it had to be about the brand, and so we made sure that we hired lots of injectors in multiple locations and had it very delegated. Because only then could the brand survive if something went, you know, something happened to me again, and so that was a, a lesson I had to learn. What our mutual dear friend Leslie Tracy talks about this all the time, and Leslie will tell you, you got to have a plan B, you got to have an, an exit route. For one thing, if you ever want to sell it, you know, you have to sell it without your name on it, because at some point you're going to want to retire and go do the next big thing that you're going to want to do, the next thing you're going to, you know, blow up and and make uh, a crazy success. So it can't just always be you, but. I think that's a hard lesson for people to learn. They come into entrepreneurship because they want to own it and put their name on it. And it's like, yeah, but you really can't because you're going to have to let the brand be on its own and, and live its own life without you, you know, overshadowing it. So, but you've done a great job at it. So, you know, I applaud that for you because I know it's hard, hard work. But when is location number five and six and seven coming or are they going to come? I think that, um, you know, uh, I think four is kind of the max <laughs> for us. I, I don't want a franchise uh, thing. I, I don't want the equality to be diluted down to that kind of level. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't be um, adverse to like some options where there's more management teams and other things involved, but, you know, for Katie and I to organize more than four, I just, I just couldn't do it. Um, you know, there, there are people that do that, like John Sig and others, you know, that have like 14, 15 uh, places. I, I just, I have no idea how they do it because it's hard enough to be four. Speaking of John Sig, I had no idea who he was, and you had him on your Instagram. He came to one of your symposiums. I met him at the Venev thing and just fell in love with that guy. Like, all the good people will cling to you. I don't know how you do it, but it's like you got a magnet on your back, and they all just come find you. But, you know, there's a guy, I have 14, 15, 6, I don't know how, he has got a ton of them, but he's a much different approach, right? He's not really out front and center. It's not about him at all. It's about, you know, the brand and the name. And so I don't know what you guys do together to build all these great brands, but it's working. I don't know if you share secrets or <laughs> if you get together around a campfire and figure it out, but somehow you're all building great, you know, great businesses. But what are things that you've done along the way that you wish you hadn't done? Or you're like, if I could just go back and fix that, I'd do it right now. Um, you know, I would say that a couple of things just at the top of my head are a lot of med spots get talked into in the early uh uh, you know, a couple of years or early phases of their uh, existence into buying a lot of laser equipment. And I think that what happens is they sit there with hundreds of thousands of dollars of laser equipment sitting there, you know, on financing, and they don't realize what type of revenue they have to produce to basically offset that. And so there were many years we were just poor as hell because we were just paying off all these lasers that weren't producing the type of revenue that we were looking for. So I would tell a, a new med spa, to not focus on lasers, I would tell them to focus on, you know, what I call the, are the big six, uh, you know, the, the six procedures that you love. 
that also reduce the highest gross revenue. And uh, lasers for us are not are not one of those things. Uh, maybe minus the silver, which is you know a new addition. Yeah, which is blowing up the world too. But you know, in your big six, what is your mix of business? Are you predominantly threads? Like, give us a percentage of threads to injectables to like esthetician services. The number one um, highest uh, gross revenue profit making thing on the planet is threads. There's no doubt that. Uh, you know, generally twenty-five to thirty-five hundred dollar retail has a wholesale cost of two to three hundred dollars. I mean, you can't beat that in surgery. You can't beat that in anything. The second thing for us is radius. Uh, we have a very high profit margin on radius because we're a tier seven MERS account. Um, so we always try to stick in the top five in MERS to keep those numbers, you know, to our favor. Uh, the third thing is for us is actually Silfirm. Uh, it's because of the fact that we're a training institute for you know Benev that we get sold from for very good prices. And then obviously we're able to sell it for, you know, uh, you know, a thousand to 1500 to $2,500 to our, to our patients. Uh, patients love sulfur satisfaction rate is so high. It's not painful like Morpheus and other lasers that uh, compete to it. So that's number, number three. And then number four, number five, it changes, but sometimes it could be Bellafil, sometimes it could be um, uh, multipolar frequency treatments like venous freeze. You know, they, they kind of alternate from, you know, year to year. It could be all therapy. Uh, that could be another profitable thing for us. So we kind of focus on those things. The problem is that the med spas, when the clinicians are talking to the patients, they have too much to talk about. They want to talk about 100 things. They're like, you know, they only have time to sell two things. So that's why they can focus most of the conversation on the six things. And not on the hundred things, they're going to make much better sales. Yeah, I can imagine just training everyone on all those things. Like, you know, think about the big six. Like, what a great idea for just training. Like, keep it keep it tight, keep it focused. And then from there, you start branching out. But we had a discussion on the way to a, um, a harbor cruise a few weeks ago. And we were talking about, you know, your role with manufacturers. And you're very smart about what years you do what things. And, and you're able to stay in the top elite groups of all these manufacturers. You're on everyone's list. And you're, you know, in many cases doing it with competitors. Like I think about Mint versus Mericu, you know, to, to all of us, it seems like competitors. I know there's a lot of, you know, a lot of history there. But how do you do that? How do you stay, you know, part of the Bellafield world, but also part of the Radius world and really keep it straight and, and give everyone the love that they need to keep you on the top of their list? You just have to, you know, like I said, you have a lot of honesty and a lot of transparency. Um, you know, if I'm going to do a big thing with Ben, I'll tell Mint first or vice versa. It's just about respect, you know. Um, you know, uh, I've worked really well to, I put mints on the map essentially, right. You know, and that, you know, their entire leadership team, uh, that whole agenda was written by me when mint first came to the United States and, you know, uh, they developed and they built and whatever, but there was some point where I wasn't getting what I needed from them. Right. I wasn't getting the type of, uh, reciprocal revenue. I wasn't getting the commissions or the speaking, um, incentives that I wanted, and so I went to Benef, and when I did that, I went back to Mint, and I told them, this is what they're offering me, this is what they're doing, can you beat that? So I, I always am very fair, I always go back and forth, I don't play the companies against each other, and I try to make them work with each other, and that's about all you can try to do to stay in their top list without ostracizing those relationships. I feel like you forced them to work together. I mean, even watching it, your symposium, you had Prolinium there, you had Galderma there, everyone's working together, thinking about what we could do, you know, as a group to improve the patient. And it's collegial. It's not, there was no controversy, no competition. It was very much working toward the same goal. But um, to that, you know, thinking about controversy in general, but I want to move on to your new podcast because it's, first of all, it's a riot. I love listening to it. Uh, the Aesthetic Dish. 
you're crossing all kinds of boundaries there. I've, the first one that you did with, I think it was Ponta, it was Jessica from Red Rabbit, you know, about the top lip injectors. Like, give us a little bit of an overview of the aesthetic dish, why we should be listening to it, and, and what your goal is with that. Because I feel like you're attacking this, um, all the elephants in the room with a much different way than being out in people's faces and being, you know, an asshole about it. It's a very much, we'll deliver, you decide. So give us an idea of what that's all about and what's, what's coming soon with that podcast. I mean, there's just been a, such a push in the last, you know, five years in the aesthetic industry that um, here's the Kool-Aid, drink it and accept it and believe it. And a lot of people do. And, you know, that's great um, to do that. But I don't know. There's so many topics that in my brain I just simply just don't agree with, you know, with some of these new policies. And so there has to be a voice for the other side. And so I try to get everybody involved, you know, the, the people's. Uh, that are pro people that are cons, you know, and try to have like a really didactic conversation about it. But the reality of it is that the Kool-Aid is not what people think it is. You know, um, you know, uh, not everybody needs ultrasound. Not everybody needs to inject in the Julia Horn technique. Not everyone needs to use certain lasers. Not everyone needs to go to, you know, 14 trainings or 20 conferences a year. I mean, just some of this stuff just needs to be dispelled. And so there has to be somebody for that. So, if, you know, if I'm going to be the bad guy, then, you know, I'll be the bad guy. But I, I actually, you know, I kind of enjoy it. Well, I think you're giving people permission to be different. Like you're saying it's okay not to have to do all the things. I mean, you mentioned several things there that are the hot the hot items. And it's like it's okay not to do that. But, you know, you had on um, – you're, you're a top 100 injector like every year. That's a big controversial thing. You had him on – I can't think of his name. It's Phil. Phil was his last name. Um, the so guy that runs it. Idea. Yes, thank you. But you've been a big advocate of that program despite people, you know, throwing down the hate like crazy. So what's your relationship with that? Because I feel like you you and Larry Blevins did a podium last year on stage talking about setting the standard and having standards in the industry. And you did a lot of really good things and had a lot of really great messages. And it's getting clouded by this whole, like, is this thing real or not? Is it a popularity contest? So what's your, what's your um, you know, your perspective on that whole pro- program? You know, Phil's getting a lot of... Um, criticism because you know it was like pay pay to win type of thing you know if you uh you know market through their company you're going to be a top 100 injector but the the truth of it wasn't that at all you know he he clearly came on really made some great uh you know counterpoints and he said look he goes we have two different parts of this we have a paid marketing part and we have a a part that's a top 100 injectors that you can't pay for to get into that top list and my argument is that when i watch the top injectors talk about this list the truth of the matter is that there's no time and place in the last four or five years I've ever looked at the list and said, man, this list doesn't make sense at all. You know, it's it's maybe off like 10, 15 percent. But generally, the people that are on that list generally, you know, should be on that list. Right. So I don't know. You know, maybe it's just jealousy. Maybe just people or don't want to, you know, they, they don't want to see one person win over the other. But there has to be some sort of standard, some sort of beginnings. And I'm happy there was because also when I was looking for the Dolce Symposium, you know, all these injectors don't really know each other, uh, you know, minus the conferences. It gave me an opportunity to go reach out to people that I would never would have met otherwise and got them involved in my symposium. So I'm really appreciative to fill into that list, you know, for that reason. Well, what baffles me about that list and the whole haterade thing, because, you know, 
I, I have opinions. I know we do the same thing with the nexties, and it's voting, and it's a it's such a, a crazy amount of work for the people who do it because you have to count all the votes and make sure they're real and yada yada yada. But you know that whole like top physicians magazine on the airplane that's all paid. Like if you want to be a top physician in Houston, Texas, you pay for that right. Like you don't get selected, you go pay for it. Like they sure they vet you, make sure that you're not a crazy person. But everything in this, you know, everything in any industry, there's a paid component to lots of things. Like even in voting, I mean, he had obviously the voting part is I know it's separate. We've talked about that quite a bit, but you know, and the list that he has for the directory. I mean, you pay to play. You're on the, I'm sure you're on the Galderma directory. You're on the, you know, the MERS directory. You're on the Cineva directory. And you bought product to get there. Guess what? You paid money to get on that directory. Like, that's just the way it works. Like, nothing in life is free. And so I'm always so shocked people get, come out and they are so angry about that list. Like, I'm like, well, then just ignore it. Like, if you hate it that much, just move on with your day. It's not going to make or break you. Get on with your life. But I get hate mail every time that it comes out because they say that um, we're, all in this, we're all in cahoots together to make people who we like famous. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no control over the list, over my list or his list. Whoever gets voted on is who gets voted on, and that's just what we do. So, you know, I, I never, I never had met Phil um, ever, you know, until this last year. I, you know, I've never paid to be on any list, you know, or to be a top hundred injector. Um, and when people were, you know, so they think we're all, you know, we're all friends, or there's some sort of conspiracy. I mean, you know, I, I just met, you know, you, Tiffany, this last year. I mean, the reality of it is that we were, we were like big people in our own lakes, right? That sometimes those lakes merge, but rarely do they do. So the reality of it is that we're all out there trying to make the aesthetic industry better in our own agendas, in our own ways. And sometimes, if you're lucky enough, you get to meet someone. I, I, I tried for years to meet you, know, you Tiffany, uh, knowing how big you were, knowing what, you know, the huge conference that you ran. And so ultimately, um, you know, um, I, there's no conspiracy. The bottom line is that there has to be standards. And if you don't like it, then, you know, then, you know, you can go uh, stick it up your, you know what. <laughs> exactly. Well, speaking of, you know, standards and, and that kind of thing, I will tell you, Scott, I've been doing training stuff for a hot minute. You know that. I don't know. Close to 10 years now. I've been hosting trainings and doing trainings. I've never had a person in all of my years of experience come to me and say, I have the program totally built out. I have all the supplies. I have the faculty. I have the agenda. Everything is done. Just give me a room and I'll do it. I will tell you at a sec next, I told everyone who would listen, I'm like, if you could just be more like Scott Callahan, I would, it'd be easy to work with you because you make everything so simple. People who are like, you know, you're controversial, you know, whatever Scott says and the Phil thing. Like, if you guys had any idea how easy it is to work with Scott, you'd be shocked because it's just like, I mean, it is. I just walked in like, here's your room. Here's some furniture. Here's the lights that you need. Here's the bed you need. And it was all done for us. It was absolutely phenomenal. But to that point, I know it's because you have a very high standard for yourself and for everyone around you. What is your opinion on that kind of thing? Like even with conferences, how do we set a standard with what we're teaching people and educating them on with who's doing the teaching? How do we select faculty? Because I'm already getting hate mail now about faculty for Aesthetic Next 5.0, who's going to be on podium. What is your perspective of how we as an industry start to set some kind of a, a calibration measure for what we put out there as like the best of the best? Again, I, I just think that, you know, that that has to be a mixture, right, of the best of the best from all the different fields. So, you know, there's needs to be derm and plastics and nurse practitioners and PAs and nurses all involved. And there need to be, um, you know, uh, in, engaging and challenging topics that they can't be sugar-coated, you know, uh, corporate, you know, garbage, you know, spewed upon uh, on us, like, you know, uh, we, the Kool-Aid that we've been hearing for several years. We want to really see evidence-based medicine and we want to see these things either work or don't work. 
we want to see before and afters. We want to see them in you know good lighting. We want to see busy and Vetra, you know, um, good analysis. We're just, you know, I think we're all kind of like, we're all like skeptics because we've seen so much garbage that we want better for our industry, right? And we want it to be safe. And so that's why I'm not, it's not that I think ultrasound is garbage. I just don't think that ultrasound is good enough now. Ultrasound will be, I think, the future, but it's not in real time that they're utilizing it and thereby it has limited use. And so um, I just like to play devil's advocate and just play both sides of that equation. Well, to that point, what's next? What is our next big thing? I know ultrasound right now is everywhere, but what's the next thing that we take into the industry, you know, the next two to three years? What, what do we look out for? Well, I think that um, the first thing, that, the big thing that you're going to see is that um, Hans Biomed and uh, Benev from Korea have uh, put in FDA approval for fillers. So you're going to see a huge uh, flow of uh, fillers coming from Korea. And when that, that happens, that's going to change everything. Because essentially all of this, you know, kind of uh, monopoly that Galderma and uh, Allergan and MERS and the other companies have on fillers and prices and stuff like that is going to plummet when the Korean fillers come into the market. Uh, the Korean fillers are very similar to RHA choices. They're like based on two, three, four. They have the same ergonomic feel to the syringes. I've seen them. They're amazing. Um, and they're coming with quickly. The other thing is you're going to see a lot of uh, advancement in regenerative medicine, exosomes, stem cells, PRP, those type of things are going to become more popular. Uh, the FDA, uh, there'll be more fights, you know, with the FDA trying to get these things, uh, you know, better approved than what they currently are. So you're going to see all, like Mark Berman and the leaders kind of fighting for the rights for, you know, uh, Americans to use those type of products. And then lastly, you're going to start to see uh, hopefully some new developments of how we do injections, um, those, in how, you know, how we perform the injections. If you look at the injections 10 years ago, how we've done then versus now, you know, we would say, God, I can't believe we did it that way 10 years ago. I mean, I, I, I hate showing pictures of my patients 10 years ago because we're so much better now than we were. So just imagine what the future would hold. Well, I think that that last part is also because we have a different expectation. We're starting to really think through this, you know, aging younger concept. And I don't want to look like I'm filled. You know, 10 years ago, we wanted like the Juvederm shelf cheek. Everybody wanted that look, you know, that raggedy Ann, like big pink, you know, high cheek. And now we're wanting to look, you know, rejuvenated and more of a platform play with like a sculpture or a collagen, you know, with threads. So I think not only is the technique radically different, I think our expectation of the industry is also, as a patient, radically different. You just had a podcast about the male aesthetic. Where do you think we're going with men? Because that's been, you know, I don't know, for the past seven, eight years, we've been saying men are on the rise, men are on the rise. We can't break that 15% ceiling. It's just like we're stuck there. How do we get men in the industry or in, in our, you know, our chairs and really start to turn that into a profitable section of our business? You know, unfortunately, I want to say that's probably a losing battle. You know, just men just don't want to go into aesthetics for whatever reason. Like I said, you're talking about, you know, um, overall male population is like 8%, uh, gay is 4%. So you're talking about a straight male aesthetic injector is less than 4% in the United States. And I'm imagining that's going to die very quickly. So um, as far as getting more uh, male patients involved, you know, we're population right now is 28% because we bring in a lot of urology elements and we bring a lot of hair transplant elements. So I think if you do a lot of stuff like you know, growth hormones, sermorellin, peptides, testosterone, biologic, you know, bioidentical hormones, and they do hair transplant, that's how you're going to bring the guys in. You have to offer things that guys were looking for. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. You got to give, give them what they want to get in the door. 
But as we kind of wrap up here, I want to know, because your brain is full of all kinds. I could ask you a thousand questions, but I'm sure you have patience to get to. We're in the middle of the day here. Um, I want to know what you're doing next. Where can we find you? I'm sure you're doing lots of different podiums and training things and advisory boards this year. So give us the how to find Scott Callahan in 2023. Sure. So, you know, the first big, big conference for me is um, I'm a speaker at the LMCA conference, and uh, I love uh, that conference. I love Keon Karimi and how he organizes that. Um, I'm also, um, I'll be running a, a couple conferences for Ben at this year. One's in New York city. Another one's going to be in, um, uh, in, uh, California. Um, I'll be involved with the aesthetic center symposium this year. I'll be involved hopefully with the aesthetic next this year. I'll be involved, um, possibly with some of the other shows that they can change their policies like the aesthetic, you know, show and things like that. So, you know, we're involved in a lot of conferences this year. And then lastly, locally, we're doing our, um, our trainings uh, in Connecticut. So what we're doing is we're doing, instead of doing symposiums, we're doing boot camps where one Friday every month, uh, doctors and nurse practitioners, PAs nurses come in from all over the country. We put them at the Greenwich Del Mar, which is like this five-star luxury hotel. Uh, they come in, they train all day long doing threads and still from training with us. And then we have a nice, uh, you know, beautiful dinner. And then they can drive back, fly back to wherever they came from. So uh, we're trying to give them a more condensed training within one day instead of making over three or four days, because we know that it's asking a lot of them to, you know, to walk away from the practice for that long. Well, you can just come to Connecticut for the day, take the train to New York and hang out in Manhattan. And, you know, no matter where you're from, you can make that work. But I'll put all of Scott's information inside of the comments or the, the post for this podcast. You can find out his Instagram website, how to find out what he's doing on trainings. I'll get all that for you guys. So you can find it all because I will tell you it is money and time so so well spent to go if you have a chance to go see scott whether it's in his own clinic or one of his boot camps somewhere in the new york office you know wherever he's wherever he's going to be at get there i promise you you'll benefit greatly from it but scott i have enjoyed being with you today and having gotten to know you in the past year and just how i didn't know you before i have no idea just it shocks me but you've been a huge influence on me and thinking about our conference what we do and how we you know present our message to the world and, and really recruit the right injectors to be on our stage so I appreciate all you've done for me, and thank you so much. Any last words before we roll off today? Listen, I um, I appreciate you, Tiffany. You have such a great uh, presence. Uh, you're a great leader. Your conferences are amazing. Your podcast is amazing. I'm just happy to know you. And um, I'm just appreciative to be in this industry. And, you know, I hope that I continue to make more friendships and develop, uh, even though I don't have that symposium. So i got to find ways to make more friends. So, uh and since I only have 300 followers on Instagram now, because I'm starting from scratch again, hopefully I'll, I'll gain some more followers this year too. So, uh, you know, and again, thank you for having me on the show. We're going to get that follower count up. Don't you worry. Well, for the record, it's been a great episode 52, and I will see all of you back here again next week. Thanks, Scott. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of For the Record. This podcast is not intended to provide legal or medical advice. It's for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. For more information on this week's guest or to get started with Aesthetic Record, email us at info at aestheticrecord.com. Be sure to tune in next week for more fresh perspectives on disrupting the status quo and surviving in the aesthetics industry.